It's Friday the 22nd of May in the year of our Lord 2020. This is War Room Pandemic. I am your host, Thomas Q. Tanaki, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, a large pangolin and an army of horseshoe bats. We are the streaming platform for the viral movement, coming to you live from all over the world. We are streaming from the War Room Pandemic comms hub of the Ruby Princess. The water is coming in through the broken hull of the ship, but a steady flow of neon green viral leakage from the underbelly of the Pangolin King is beating back the encroaching waves. This is truly a Churchill moment for my Pangolin co-host, as he is the harbinger of the virus. And what a tremendous virus it is, the Chinese Wuhan CCP coronavirus. Remember, other podcasts may claim to be the first to have covered the pandemic, but here on War Room Pandemic featuring Thomas Q. Tanaki, you're listening to the podcast that started the pandemic itself. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to War Room Pandemic. War Room Pandemic. Here's your host, Thomas Q. Tanaki. G'day everyone and thank you to those of you who correctly identified that you're not actually listening to War Room Pandemic, you're listening to The Poor Can Feed The Birds. I'm Tom Tanaki. I am not Stephen Bannon and this is not his podcast. Um, And uh, I suppose those of you who haven't heard his podcast um, wouldn't have had any fucking idea what that was about anyway. Why do I listen to Steve Bannon? Why listen to people like that? It's not because I'm getting red-pilled. It's because it's important to hear what your, I suppose, your political opposition, um, but also, you know, uh, uh, disseminators of information to huge swathes of people. It's important to hear what they're saying. Um, uh, Steve Bannon actually was the first podcast to, to be talking about the pandemic because Steve Bannon knows a lot more than many of us put together about China and actually we'd be fools to ignore what he's saying even if we know that we don't like his nationalist slash ethno-nationalist politics. Um, He's educated on China and so he's always had many correspondents uh, talking to him through you know secure channels from China for a very long time and so it's actually a source of a lot of great information. Um, as well as a a hefty dose of really shit information about the pandemic. So that's why um, I've been listening to him. Now, in researching people like that, in listening to what they have to say, and not just him, but also, you know, spending hours looking at what anti-lockdown activists or coronavirus conspiracy hoaxer cookers have to say, I could then come back and, and you know, deliver content. So, you know, um, you should be happy that I'm not simply ignoring what they have to say. And one important part of looking at that and then coming back to make content out of it as well is that... Um, you know, is the matter of trying to sort out the wheat from the chaff. So there are often legitimate concerns and considerations that nationalists or conspiracy theorists are then skewing into a vehicle for their their political, you know, their desired political outcomes. Um, and and I guess the focus of this episode um, and the conversation that I've had here and that you're about to listen to is on China. We all know. You know that there were that there have been black spots, uh, points of confusion of uh, China's handling of the coronavirus. We all know that there are widespread 
global concerns about their um, their surveillance state apparatus, about their treatment of minorities like Uyghur Muslims, um, and, and and many other concerns besides. But we would be fools to hand all that over to ethno-nationalists and simply sit there policing whether our own mainstream media and right-wing pundits and the like use the term Wuhan virus or Chinese virus. We know that those things are often tactical racism deployed by people like Trump and their, you know, their shitty Australian counterparts um, to, to, to motivate popular sentiment against Chinese people. And we know that also those things take a toll on the, the welfare, for example, of Asian Australians. You know, apparently there's been at least 300 Asian Australians who've been attacked in the street. But nonetheless, if that's all we concern ourselves with, then we handball legitimate concerns and indeed the whole discourse over to nationalists while we sit there correcting the language used by the media. And I don't want to do that. And it's really important to get our conversation right and to understand what's actually going on in China. Which is why I've spoken to Dr. Cass, who is um, an, a lecturer and a researcher in Asian studies at an Australian university. Um, I really enjoyed my chat with Dr. Kaz, and I think you will too. Um, there's so many shocking things to learn about what's going on in China with 5G-enabled surveillance, with social credit, and so on and so forth, that I found it to be a, a surreally entertaining hour of conversation, and I hope you will too. If you appreciate the work that I put in and the people that I speak to, then I would appreciate it. If you can, if you would support me with a clam or two on Patreon, that will enable me to spend more of my time putting in work, to work longer and harder on not just the podcast content that I put out, but also on the videos that I make and the research that I do. And it would also help you to feel good about yourself. And that's what I want for you. I want you to feel good about yourself. And it seems to me the only way that you can feel good about yourself whilst siphoning from my content is to pay me a little bit of money to do it. If you can, patreon.com slash Tom Would also appreciate it if you would leave me a good review on Apple Music or any other podcast app through which you listen to the pork and feed the birds. I would appreciate it if you would share it with your friends and go back. You know, I'm at episode 11. I can't believe some of the amazing people I've managed to chat to so far. Um, I am trying to build a platform to be able to pass apart the shit that nationalists talk about versus the shit that we, as a progressive organised left in Australia, should be talking about. Anyway, enough bullshit for me. Let's get on to Dr. Kaz. I am speaking to Dr. Kaz, who is a researcher on Asian studies at an Australian university. Kaz, hello and welcome. Hello hello there, Tom. How are you going? Yes, I'm good. I'm good, thank you. Um, Kaz, straight off the top, good morning you'll be asking this. Do you, do you listen to Steve Bannon's War Room ever? Because I'm obsessed I, at the moment and morbid obsessed. Yeah, yeah. I do, I do. He's been he's been on the um, China track for a long time now, and uh, he's, he's pumping first. out the content on China. Yeah, he says he's the first to have been doing a, a podcast specifically about the coronavirus pandemic, and I, I thought it might have been hyperbole. I looked around, yeah, nah, and then I realised I've been backtracking because I 
wants. And, uh, you know, this, what I know about the, the far right or whatever you want to call them, the populist right, is that so many of them get their messaging from Steve Bannon, it seems to me. Like out there, like content creators all seem to dance to his tune to one degree or another, probably because of his time in the Trump administration and the fact that they all see him as this arch puppet master, certainly like a lot of the left do. But his content is just endless. What, what do you think about Steve Bannon's war room pandemic? Um, yeah, look, he's really trying to capture the whole uh, Fox, uh, Tucker Carlson kind of vibe yeah. in terms of his graphics and his presentation. But he's been he's been sort of China pilled for a long time, actually, because of his critiques of globalization, yeah. right? As soon as you start talking globalization, you're going to start talking uh, supply chains. And you're going to start talking global politics, and then you're going to start talking China. So he's been on the China thing for a really long time, and yeah. um, I guess that the pandemic has given him an opportunity to push that up front and to get some attention. Although I don't know if there are many um, fans as dedicated as your good self to um, to following him quite so intently, because oh my God, there's a lot of content on there. You know, but yeah, he's very educated on China, um, and and really let down by his his necessarily servile attitude towards the Trump administration. But I do get the impression that's so that hopefully there's one or two people in the Trump administration who will actually keep listening to him. He's got to pander to them a bit. I don't know what his relationship is to Peter Navarro, and Peter Navarro is a long-term China hawk who's now advising Trump. Uh, Peter Navarro has written a number of books on the coming, you know, the, the war with China and the collapse with China and the this and that with China. Um, and for a lot of these hawks, they've been going on about the coming collapse of China for, you know, at least 15 years. And um, finally, their sort of moment in the sun is mm. coming where it's, it's, you know, the Chinese system and the problems that it's causing for the world and the war with America and, you know, these clash of civilizations. They're finally getting their sort of wet dream where, where this is really coming up to the fore. So Peter Navarro has really stepped up as an influencer of Trump. And uh, it's kind of having a it's, – it's worth having a bit of a look over his um, actual works that he's um, – that he's written because, um, you know, he's, re he's really just out there in terms of, um, you know, China is the sick old man of Asia and, yeah. um, you know, all those kind of very old tropes that have been going for a long time. Um, and this is their moment where those China hawks, uh, Gordon Chang's another one, where they can really get their influence um, into, you know, into Trump's ears. So there's a lot of influences out there now. Um, trying to influence Trump around this. And you can see the impact of it where he's really taking up this idea of the China virus, the Chinese yeah. virus and things like that. Past the time for the sort of, the, you know, the imperialist war hawks who once obsessed over the Middle East, that they, they appear to have had their heyday and it's now the time of China, which, of course, is no surprise because of the rise of you know that the, the China is the, the 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 global power that they are, but yeah, it's it's worth remarking that they're they're in the centre of the 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 thoughts of every war hawk in America now, aren't they? 
Yeah, absolutely. And a number of interest groups that have been um, trying to push Trump in certain directions about China, they're yeah. really coming into their own as well. So the classics there would be uh, Falun Gong, the banned uh, meditation sect, the Chinese meditation sect. So they've be- they've become huge supporters of the Trump campaign. Um, the Trump team, their donators to Trump, uh, they produce a lot of content that you mm-hmm. see around the place. Um, they're very prolific. They have a daily um, email newsletter they send out. They print newspapers. They produce a lot of digital media. Um, and that gets shared around a lot. Um, so you would know them as Epoch Times. You'll have seen their newspaper as Epoch Times. It's around everywhere for free. Yeah, yeah, I've been given it tons of times when leaving the Melbourne CBD. They stand outside main train stations yep. and give copies of it to people. Yeah, yeah, yep. and they, you know, like even last week they were letterboxing in the Melbourne suburb of Doncaster, you know, popping it into people's letterboxes. Um, and their online media stuff they produce is uh, New Tongue Dynasty. So NTD, if you see anything badged with NTD. Um, any film stuff uh, that's from them. And, look, some of their media reportage is great because they're pretty connected into China, um, being Chinese, um, and pretty well connected into China. And they don't call it the Chinese virus. They call it the CCP virus Mm, because their, their beef is not with the Chinese people. Their beef is with the Chinese government that after a massive protest that they had in 1999, uh, the Chinese government cracked down on them and banned them. So, you know, in, in the 90s in China, there were a lot of um, the rise of the grifter, really, particularly the religious grifter. So um, a lot of religious cults and sects and groups formed in China and uh, Falun Gong's one of those. And uh, they um, follow a particular chap who sort of teaches them how to conserve their vital chi and energy to heal themselves yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's a few famous cases of people refusing cancer treatment and refusing medicine because they were relying on Qigong and then they died. So there was a crackdown on them in the 90s and then by 99 they decided, right, that's it, we're going to show our true power levels. And about 10,000 of them turned up in Beijing and uh, surrounded. The silent protest. Yep, silent protest. And they surrounded Zhongnanhai, which is where the Chinese leaders live, um, in Tiananmen Square and mm. next to Tiananmen Square. And, of course, you know, uh, it's no surprise, really. The Chinese government didn't go, oh, yeah, you're right, um, that's cool, you're nice, silent meditators. They just went, holy moly, who are these people? Get about. So yeah. they had a big crackdown on them and um, they spent the 2000s uh, setting up in places like Canada and Australia and then... Um, really drawing attention to the harvesting of prisoners' organs Mm. um, in China. So the big thing was Falun Gong people are political prisoners and they are being subjected to not only brainwashing and torture um, in re-education camps, but also they're having their body organs harvested in the um, transplant industry. Right, right. Um, okay, so there's various factions, and a lot of these factions are the ways that we we sort of get our media about China. So it's no wonder that there's a there's like a, a, a confluence of, of of 
very conflicting stereotypes. And a lot of people who argue, you know what I mean? And I guess that's why we wanted to have this conversation about, you know, how to talk about China and the CCP without erring into, into propaganda or xenophobia or whatever. Um, what, what, so that's my question. How, how are we to view China, I suppose, in the light of, of coronavirus, without erring into that you know what is the take where are we to what you know what what are your thoughts i think the first thing is to um recognize that china isn't a monolith that's the first thing yeah so that's number one and assuming just because xi jinping the current leader is the most powerful leader that china's seen for a long time um, and he's ruling China with an iron fist, doesn't mean that he's got complete control over the whole country. And it also doesn't explain how there are different ways of working within China and different factions and different uh, kind of agendas going on. And so yep. um, people just go, oh, China, they immediately think Xi Jinping and Beijing. But as we can see, there's some problems there with that. So, for example, with the uh, virus, it looks like, uh, who knows really, I mean, it's like reading tea leaves, really working out what's going on in China, but um, it looks like it was that problem with the provincial levels and the central government that caused the virus uh, issue at the beginning. So how that works is the provincial levels um, have a lot of uh, power and leeway, the provincial governments, in how they do stuff. Okay. Um, and they are held to account when things go wrong. Mm -hmm. And so over decades, actually, this is proven to be a problem where something's gone wrong at the local level and everybody's covered it up. And so the famous example would be in the Great Leap Forward, everybody's growing grain and making steel and it's all revolutionary. We're meeting our revolutionary targets yeah. and they were just bullshitting. They're just making it up. Yeah. So they were just making up their quotas, right? And saying, yes, we've achieved this. We've grown so much rice. Well, we're more revolutionary and we've grown more. And then people starved. Um, so, you know, 20 million plus people die in, in a famine. So that's the most famous example of that failing. Um, yeah. And in the case of the virus, uh, it looks like provincial level people were trying to keep a lid on it. They weren't sure how serious it was. Um, they didn't want things to get out of hand. Until they could be sure what was going on, they kept it quiet and right. tried to damp it down. Then it just got way out of control. And then, of course, they're in the poo because the national government's going to come down and go, well, what were you guys doing? Now, in the defence of those provincial people, um, China has a huge problem with rumours. Huh? So it's it's a huge problem with rumors conspiracy theories reading you know telltale signs about politics um and so there are very strict on a grassroots level like as in is in or in a media influenced level like in what way so in a system where people don't trust the media to tell you the truth yeah they're going to trust each other right yeah and so that's how rumors spread and we see that here once people have no faith in the media they turn to each other, they start spreading rumours. My cousin's auntie's sister talked to someone in the car park who saw the mole children from Central Park being rescued. Yeah. You know, 
and that's that's kind of how that's that's kind of how rumors work. And so when you've got a system where people don't trust that the government's transparent, they can't trust the media to tell them what's going on. Uh, they're going to turn to each other, and they turn to rumors. And China's seen some nasty results from rumor spreading. And in fact, all over the world. Um, you can see the the uh, spread of rumours, particularly through social media and the impact that has. So, for example, yeah. Muslims being beaten to death in India because they're said to have been abducting children or they're spreading the coronavirus or yeah. they're doing something else. The rumour spreads around, um, usually through some misinterpreted um, photograph or statement. Next minute, people are being bashed to death. So, we see that um, social media like WhatsApp, uh, real hotbed centres of rumour and spreading stuff. So in China, where people use WeChat, it's heavily monitored by the government to try to stop the spread of rumours right? Um, and to stop treason and, you know, anti-government strategies and things like that. But yeah. rumours are huge. And so therefore, at the provincial level, okay, here's some bunch of doctors. They're having a bit of a chat. They're spreading some rumours. Uh, we better get on top of this rumour spreading because rumours have real effects in real life. Okay, so um, this is national level intelligence shutting down what they see to be uh, grassroots propagandists because without realising at that stage in, what was it, November, December, that there actually was the beginnings of a genuine viral pandemic. Yeah, so the way the censorship goes is it's at every level. So the first level, of course, is self-censorship where people um, keep themselves quiet or they dob on each other. And then you've got censorship through the internet providers. Um, if you're using an internet cafe, through the internet cafe, um, you know, there's a very um, uh, detailed and extensive network of keeping a track on what people are doing and closing down rumours. Uh, you know, not spreading things from your accounts. There's AI checking of rumours and checking of information, so through keywords and phrases and things like that. But there's also a lot of manual checking as well. Yeah. Um, and so rumour control is crucial. I mean, there were rumours around uh, the Fukushima disaster, right? Yeah. So Japanese tsunami, Fukushima gets flooded. Um, suddenly... There's talk about this cloud of radiation that's coming towards the east coast of China. Mm. And people start freaking out. And then somebody says, wow, you know, iodine's really good for radiation. Uh, where do you get iodine? It's added to salt. Immediately, the east coast of China sells out in salt. People are buying like 20 lifetimes worth of salt okay. because they think somehow it's magically going to protect them from the radiation. Um, I even had students. Like chloroquine, doesn't it? <laughs> That's well. This is you know, it's 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 a, something we're familiar with. And yeah. uh, I even had students in Australia whose parents were saying, "Oh, send salt, send salt. We need salt. You know, wow. the radiation's okay. coming." Wow. Um, and of course, the government tries to tamp it down. Now that's your problem right there. Once a rumor's out and it's wild and it's live, the minute the government tries to stop it, that's just proof of the rumor, right? So we were right. There's a conspiracy. They knew all along. And so yeah. um, after a few days, it became clear that the salt thing wasn't going to work. And if you ate that much salt, you would just die. Yeah. Um, so I think that the Chinese, uh, you know, 
granny stockpile, salt stockpile, will probably still be there in 100 years in somebody's <laughs> back room. It's going to make the toilet paper hoarding of Australia look like nothing um, because people freaked out. And so, you know, there's a lot of evidence that rumours do have a real effect in society. So there's a big pressure to keep rumours under control. And okay, so I think that's got- probably how it went wrong at the beginning. Yeah. So, so going back to November, December, we've got a group of doctors in there. Uh, we've got intelligence services trying to shut down those things, and then we find out later on as we get through to January, and the and and Wuhan province have to to admit to the national level that actually this is way too bad. We've got to tell the truth. We can't contain this. And then um, they went very hard in the opposite direction, harder in terms of lockdown than I think anywhere. I think anywhere else did in the world and um, people in Wuhan province were confined to their homes with, for a period of time with, with food being sent to them. Um, is, is that about the size of it? I mean, was that sort of the sounds of their handle? Yeah, yeah, that's the size of it. And where, where the criticism really comes in is that this is all happening around Chinese New Year. And in Chinese New Year, it's the biggest migration of people on the planet. Annually. Okay. So you've got millions of people leaving Wuhan to go back to their hometowns and millions of people coming to Wuhan to go for Chinese New Year. And Wuhan is a central uh, transportation hub. You know, it's a key city with a key modern city and it's got, you know, fast trains and it's a lot of transport goes in and out of Wuhan. And so the fact that they didn't close Wuhan before Chinese New Year is a huge problem and a huge mistake. Um, so it meant that people were travelling out of the zone and coming into the zone when all of that could have been stopped. And there were big public events just days before the clo- before the lockdown. Um, so, yes, it is true that they did crack down. They did lock down harder than anywhere else. I don't know anywhere else where some people were actually welded into their apartments. Yeah. You know, where apartments were actually welded shut. People couldn't leave um, the, the, the block, could they? They couldn't leave the tower that they were living. Yeah, so, um, you know, so you've got actually uh, footage of um, people coming along and welding, authorities welding metal bars across doorways mm. so that the doors could be open a bit to get food in and out, but a person couldn't go through. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they really took the, the strategy of... Um, quarantining people who were positive, whereas elsewhere people have been home quarantined, right, which means that they spread it to the people they're living with. Yeah, yeah. But in the Chinese situation in Wuhan, they decided pull them out of their living environments and uh, put them in these big massive um, makeshift hospitals so they don't infect anybody else. And that's, you know, was a key strategy to keep the infection down. But China's set up for this in a way that we're not. For example, um, China's moving to cashless society for a start. So people are used to doing things via apps and electronically. They have an incredible delivery delivery, um, industry where you can just order anything online and it comes within hours. You know, none of this sort of antiquated Australia Post kind of thing that we're going through here. So you can order anything, get anything, get it delivered, quick and easy. Um, so they're really set up for online living um, and to be stay at home because the services are being delivered. 
Yeah. So you could just order in anything and get it delivered. And it wasn't just Wuhan that was under lockdown. I mean, um, my students who were spread across the whole of China, of course, they couldn't come to Australia because it was the travel ban. But, um, you know, they're all in lockdown with their parents. And uh, the rules mostly were um, most people live in apartments. So that's another thing that makes it easy to monitor um, that, uh, you know, you most households could send someone out every couple of days okay. to go and buy supplies and you could get supplies ordered in. Right. And all of those areas have got strong uh, neighbourhood committees. So these are kind of like, um, you know, set up from the 1950s. These are like uh, gangs of grannies, like neighbourhood watch but on steroids, like nothing escapes them. They are terrifying. You park your bicycle in the wrong place. They know. They know before you've even thought about it. And they know. Their job is basically is a lagger. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah. I've heard of this um, from the DPRK, which I used to. Yeah, I, their job is to essentially monitor and then to lag anything upwards. <laughs> that's 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 under. Yep. yep. And they. I mean, they have a role in um in. Uh, say, community policing. I mean, China has, uh, people call it a police state, but actually it has fewer police per head of population than Australia. Really? And, yeah, and so how do you how do you get your policing out into the community? You use neighbourhood committees. Okay. So the neighbourhood committees might intervene in uh, petty crime. Um, they keep a track of um, uh, celebrities taking drugs. That's something they've had a lot of uh, wins on uh, getting celebrities adopted in for drug taking. Oh, um, that kind of thing, bit of an, you know, they do. Vent, you know. <laughs> yep, and uh, they also intervene in domestic violence and um, you know things like that. So right. yeah, so and they're they're pretty extensive. And uh, now you see, if you um, if you're put under quarantine, say in Beijing now. Um, you know, you come in by a train from somewhere, um, you're met at the station, you're organised into your district, you go on a mini bus driven by people in hazmat suits to a disinfecting station, your luggage is disinfected, your paperwork's processed, you're taken to your street, you go, the street committee process your paperwork, you go to your apartment, they put an electronic sensor on the door so they know when the door's been opened, um, your food, Every, all your deliveries are left at the, you know, at the uh, neighbourhood committee and they bring it up once a day yeah. um, and after your two weeks are up, off you go. That's so incredibly efficient. Uh, yeah, and that's all because of the neighbourhood committee because they've already got that structure there. So okay. you've yeah. got your neighbourhood committee, people living in apartments, buying stuff online with good delivery services, you're pretty well placed for, you know, enforcing a quarantine, you know, where people are compulsorily kept at home. Kaz, you mentioned the uh, cashless society uh, thing before, because in, in, and that's something that, that China's pretty much there in a lot of urban areas. Um, there's, 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 there's. I've, I've seen uh, more mentions of that of late from the anti-lockdown lot who are, are worried about it from here uh, appearing here. What are some of the criticisms or the concerns about the cashless society, Ben? What, what does that come with for China? Um, the pros and the cons uh, can be summed up in one word, scams. So um, people are worried about being scammed. Okay. And you can be scammed when everybody's using smartphones 
um, and uh, some of the apps are skimming information, uh, people are scamming you and tricking you, and uh, you know, there's a concern that people, particularly older people, mightn't understand the yeah. technology and they're going to get scammed online. Mm. But on the other side, people see the cashless society and things like the social credit system as really important because they're stopping scamming because you can see what's going on and there's transparency what's going on. So China's gone from a situation where everybody knew everybody to a situation where people don't feel safe. I don't know what's going on. A lot of scammers, a lot of grifters around. Um, and who do we trust? We no longer rely on our family or our village or the people that we know or even our apartment block. Um, up until housing reform in the 1990s, you know, there wasn't private housing. So you lived in your work unit. Um, your work unit provided your housing as part of your employment. So everybody knew everybody. You work with everybody. You know everybody. You know what's going on. Yeah. And then once it's privatised housing, you could be living next door to anybody. You don't know who the people are in your apartment block. You don't know where they're from. Um, and people feel worried about being scammed and tricked. Um, and they're worried about, you know, rising crime and things like that. So they love things like um, uh, you know, me measures that we might think are draconian or or dangerous or take away freedoms, they actually think that's good because yeah. it provides a level of safety. Yeah. Are they, are they, are they concerned uh, in China as far as, you know, regarding the broader social credit system in a way that maybe not just about cashless society? What's the... Because surely in the hands of, of, of uh, you know, an administration that, that, that has an agenda... Uh, or could have an agenda towards certain people or certain classes of people, then social credit system could marginalise them or entrench their marginalisation even further. How does it work and what are the concerns? Okay, so I guess I'd come back with that. Um, when the uh, data um, legislation went through in Australia, would you yeah. say that Australians were concerned about that? Uh, metadata? Yep, the metadata. Yes, I would, yes, yeah, some Australians, yes, yeah. Right. So the people that are concerned about it are going to be concerned about it. The majority of people are going to go, oh, I've got nothing to hide. The, I don't mind. If you've got nothing to hide, then don't worry thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same thinking in China. Yeah. Okay. I'm not a scammer. I'm not a schemer. Why have well, I got nothing to hide whatsoever? This is for my own good. Yeah. Same thinking. And it's the same type of people that are concerned about it. So you kind of, the people that are clued into politics, the people that are critical of government overreach are the same people. You know, the lawyers, the university lecturers and the people that we could call sort of, um, I hear we'd call them on the left, those sort of people are concerned about government overreach. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. But I, I reckon if you, if you asked 100 Australians, are you concerned about your metadata? What percentage do you reckon would say, yeah, I'm concerned? What, 5%? Yeah, maybe there might have been a little bit more when, when it was being discussed in the papers. But since it came in, no, people don't give a shit. Yeah, yeah. only the, 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 the political obsessives and the like, probably, or the activist class, or a few other small, small groups of people. Yeah, and so you see that same thing in China. The majority of people go, if this is going to make our society better, safer, I can go about my business without worry. Um, those bad people will have something to worry about. They'll be identified and dealt with. 
I love it. I'm happy for it. And so some of the examples of people that have fallen foul of it might be an investigative journalist who's looking at um, local level corruption. Yeah. And is then dragged through the courts by the some local officials. Uh, they then end up with a poor social credit rating, uh, can't send their kid to a certain school, can't buy plane tickets, can't go on a high-speed train. These systems are really integrated. So, 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 so a damaging social credit rating can can mean you can't go on a high-speed train, is that? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> of course, because you need to show your ID to buy the tickets, right? And so if your ID is um, controlled, then, yeah. yeah, of course, you can be controlled in all those sorts of things. Yeah, um, so, but then bureaucracy or state level up police or what have you can then uh, influence your social credit rating fairly easily. So then you just end up being more at the, uh, you, your, your, your freedoms end up being more at the behest of petty bureaucrats or, or, or you know. Yeah, absolutely. So you could be, say you've got a business and you're scammed and you go bankrupt that will affect your social credit rating oh, because yeah. then you're not a, a reasonable person or you're not a, you know. And so the idea that, um, you know, and the social credit system still being played out and still being worked out. But on the whole, if you just talk to the average everyday person, they're going to go, yeah, look, identifying bad people, good thing. We like it. Um, yeah. And so, of course, it's completely open to abuse, uh, mistaken identity. That's another issue. Um, how do you work out what your credit system is? Um, but people on the whole really accept these kind of technological solutions to societal problems. So, yeah. Yeah. for example, in the pandemic, the idea that you use your smartphone and you've got a little QR code that um, tells you your pandemic status. So, you um, every midnight at midnight you've put some data in and there's data about you that's put in and it'll give you a code where you get a red green or a yellow and if you've got the green you can go into your shop you can go on public transport you can do your stuff and if you don't have that forget it you're staying home you're not getting into the shop so um people go, Look, yeah it's pain but it's like the pain. gamification of 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 social credit almost, isn't it? You know, you want to get the higher rating, you want to consistently get it every day. It gamification of life, actually, almost like. Well, funny you should say that because one uh, little controversial thing that um, Xi Jinping introduced for party members, of which there's about 90 million, something like that, party members, um, is having to play on a little Xi Jinping thought app on your phone every day, a little quizzy sort of game app thing, and uh, uh, being quizzed about Xi Jinping thought and the Communist Party, and then getting bonus points for that. And um, <laughs> you know, and so it actually is literally a game where you're literally, uh, you know, building up your brownie points with the uh, within the party. And what do the points get you? What's the points do? I think it's like if you play for a month, you might get the equivalent of, I don't know, a custard bun or something that you can buy. I mean, I asked one of my students, his parents are in the, um, one of my ex-students, his parents are in the Communist Party, and he just said, oh, come on, Case, you've just made this up. So when he went home at Chinese New Year, he asked them, and they said, yeah, yeah, we have to do it every day. And he's going, well, what do you get out of it? Oh, you know, like the equivalent of a pencil at the end of the week or whatever Amazing. it is. But, you know, we have to do it. 
Um, and you'll actually notice what's really interesting is that um, the cutesiness around this. Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll send you um, an image of the um, the quarantine notice that you get put on your apartment, you know, when you come back to Beijing. And at the bottom it says, you know, beating the virus and isolation is everybody's business. And yeah. there's these cutesy cartoon faces, you know, of the police and the neighbour committee and the kids and stuff like that. And, yeah. um, you know, years ago they came up with um, you're at the internet cafe and, and uh, suddenly these two characters, very cutesy, big-eye cartoon characters of police officers, a male and a woman, pop up, Jing Jing and Cha Cha, and Jing Cha is actually the Chinese word for police. And they just pop up to remind you to keep yourself nice on the internet, oh, yeah. you know, so <laughs> just to remind you that you're being watched at all times. Yeah, for sure, um, for sure. So, yeah, so it, it has become very cutesified, and, and sometimes yeah. they've made some cutesy things that um, have fallen foul and, people on the internet have fought back and they've had to oopsie uh, botch that and sort of remove it. So oh, sometimes you're ham-fisted with these things, you know, little rap songs about dealing with the virus and things like that. Um, oh, that haven't yeah. always worked very well. But so, um, Well, the, the social credit and such, and, and then also, I guess, 5G-enabled facial recognition technology, you know, 5G being, you know, such, such a high bandwidth that it allows for that you can move massive quantities of data, therefore allowing you to, to really instill, like, good, good, decent surveillance tech. I mean, that can, that can, that can uh, supercharge the, 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 the monitoring of marginalised populations like Uyghur Muslims, as it has done in China, no? Yeah, absolutely. Look, 5G has been a signature project for China and it's been um, a difficult one for them because the company, Huawei, has been um, treated with uh, probably rightfully placed suspicion um, as, uh, you know, basically a potential spy. And so, therefore, in the Five Eyes community, so uh, except for four of the Five Eyes apart from Britain, have all said, no, no way, we're not having Huawei involved in the rollout of 5G um, because we think that it will allow secret backdoors into the um, into the 5G that will then track back to China, although Huawei says, oh, no, we're an independent country, nothing to do with us. But yeah. the way China you know, the way that capitalism works in China is, of course, the party's completely involved and implicated in, you know, sort of all levels of everything, really. Mm. Um, so 5G is one of their signature projects. Um, they've been really, really spruiking it. Um, obviously, it's got an amazing speed. Um, and in a lot of countries, um, they've just gone straight to wireless. They haven't bothered with landlines and infrastructure and copper cables and all of that. Yeah. So China's been way ahead on the internet front for a long time compared to Australia um, yeah. Yeah. because they really invested in that. And so 5G is just taken for granted. It's the future. Uh, in fact, it's the present in a lot of places. And they've really um, they've really emphasised the use of it for surveillance. So a couple of um, propaganda videos have been made with some of the big telecommunications um, entities like China Mobile and so on and so forth, where you'll have um, uh, one that was particularly hilarious. It just came out a couple of months ago, focused on these uh, the granny network 
in the an upscale the um, upscale district of Beijing. So in Chaoyang, which is uh, kind of the embassy district of Beijing, very upscale area, and the um, the Chaoyang grannies have got a lot of wins under their belt, you know, for the celebrities with drugs and things like that. Okay. So they're a very active neighbourhood watch group and they have their, they use their WeChat, they have their, their um, you know, surveillance going on on their social media and they're keeping an eye on everything. And so this ad came out. And so there's some people, you know, running down the street with a motorbike that they've stolen and a granny gets upset and she gets suspicious and she takes a photo with her mobile phone and then through the wonders of 5G, you know, these people are caught and captured and identified. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and last year there was a big advertisement where um, it's fiction but it's where you can see where it's going, which is a person who was on the run from police being pursued through the streets and one of the cops is wearing 5G-enhanced um, facial recognition glasses. And so they, in real time, recognise who the person is and they activate things like spikes in the road because there are all these nodes and networks all through the city so they can track where the person's running and then they, they ride, they steal a bicycle and they run across, you know, they're riding along and then suddenly the 5G-enhanced cop uh, pushes a button and spikes pop out of the road and bang, the criminal is caught because these bike tyres go flat. Um, and that's like, kind of the dream. Here, like some someone, some creep with stolen from the bottle, like you know, with a copper with special glasses that activates spikes in the road. It's just lurking. Like if you think of that playing out in that way here, you know, you you, you could you couldn't you, you couldn't promise people safety in that way. I don't think without them simply thinking, oh yeah, that could be me. Yeah, you're just walking along and suddenly, kabong, there's a spike in your foot <laughs> because some 5G dude went, oh, oops, I meant to order my noodles for lunch and I accidentally pushed the wrong button on my glasses. I mean, <laughs> but, but, you know, that's the dream. The dream oh, is... That's a 5G spike. Everyone's worried about 5G towers. Worry about the 5G spike. When this video came out, actually, um, you know, there were some pretty hilarious comments on it. And someone said, look, we don't understand why the 5G enhanced cop just didn't direct the powers of the rays from the 5G tower and fry the guy. Why didn't they just do that? Why didn't they rely on the spikes in the row? That seems a bit 20th century, relying on physical infrastructure. So that's the dream. You know, the dream is that the city itself is wired up with sensors. Okay. Um, uh, and that it's not just cameras, it, you know, it's cameras, it's tracking, it's everything, and that's in real-time monitoring. And you can certainly see that with the facial recognition systems that they're rolling out, that, yeah. you know, there's a capacity that you can be jaywalking and next minute, kabing, fine appears on your mobile phone because you've been had the facial recognition. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I guess I should ask, you know, it should be, I mean, people get very worried about 5G because, you know, of course it causes the coronavirus, but we um, should we be worried about this same sort, not the 5G coronavirus, the 5G spikes and such, the so 5G-enabled city along with the surveillance system. I mean, we, sh we should be worried about it here because we shouldn't so much be worried about how much of a surveillance state China is and be acknowledging that our state is, as part of the five eyes, as you said earlier, is also a surveillance state par excellence, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Look, anyone who's been to London knows that, you know, there's just not one inch of London where you're not under surveillance. Um, and, uh, you know, people just kind of live with as if it doesn't exist, as if, as if it's not a thing. Um, so I guess, you know, with the 5G, people worrying about it, I don't know, fading the curtains or whatever 5G is going to do. But it's actually what's the use of 5G? So, yeah, of course, in our everyday lives, we'll actually be able to work from home, um, those people in the knowledge economy or whatever. Um, and where does that lead? That leads to an erosion of workers' rights and uh, protections as we get the uberization of different industries where people are no longer in a workplace. And so what does that actually mean for workers' rights and protections? Um, so that's one element. Gamers will be happy because suddenly, yay, we'll finally have good ping rates for games. Yeah. But what else can be done with 5G? And that is where it really can enhance um, surveillance. I mean, a lot of technologies have already been used, for example, tracking where phones all gather together. So um, if you monitor um, phone signals and suddenly you see thousands of phones all turning up in one spot and heading to one spot, you know that that's um, a problem. You know, you know that there's a protest going on there or there's, you know, something happening. Um, and so I think that um, we do have a lot of surveillance that we may not even be aware of and certainly 5G just takes it to another level. In terms of the implementing of it, a lot of these things rely on infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, where I'm sitting here, uh, we have really aging infrastructure. The roads are pretty crap. You know, the sewage system's 100 years old and sort of failing. Um, and on the whole, I don't really see Australian cities turning into these extremely high-tech and modern cities in yeah. the way that Chinese cities are developing. Yeah. So, Maybe our crap infrastructure will mean that it it doesn't really work as well. But I do think it's it's more the surveillance capabilities of five G that we should be concerned about rather than the um, you know lack of oxygen to the brain causing coronavirus or something like that. Yeah, sure. Okay, so we've got uh, criticisms that we could leverage at China about the way they've handled the corona. I guess we've got things that we could criticise about the way that their, their state is, you know, and in some other respects that we've talked about. We've got, um, we've, we've, we'd like to be able to talk about some of those things, but we've also got a lot of war hawks, as we discussed at the start, and nationalists and uh, propagandists and even a few governments around the world who really benefit in one way or another or really want us to uh, um, err into, err beyond criticism into into to agitation of sorts and let's not forget we've also got you know i think a reported 300 you know and i say this as an anti-racist we've got a reported 300 asian australians at least there's probably 10 times more who've reported being attacked uh because you know of fucking idiots who who take sky news a little too literally um uh for their their propaganda uh, through the coronavirus. So how my question is, how do we even criticise China right now without playing into the hands of nationalists? What are your thoughts? Well, I think the first thing is actually taking a leaf out of Falun Gong's book is making a differentiation between Chinese people and the Chinese government. Yeah, That's yeah, okay. number one. That's got to be number one. 
Um, so instead of the Chinese do this, the Chinese do that, it's the Chinese government does yeah. this or the Chinese leaders. So I think that's number one. Um, and certainly I personally don't want to be held um, as if I'm individually responsible for Scott Morrison's behaviour and attitudes. A lot of people I know in America don't want to be held that way about Donald Trump. It's the same in China as well. We should just separate out between the people and the leader. That's number one point. So um, in terms of the, you know, this festering anti-Chinese sentiment, it's been going on for a long time in Australia you know, 1860s actually probably, but yeah. in recent times it's around China's influence um, and that's been really kicked along because of um, Xi Jinping's strategy, which is stop hiding your light under a bushel and show your true power level. And so that's been his strategy as a leader. And China, his vision by 2050, China will take its place as a global leader. And so therefore they're just doing that. Um, and they're using all the, the government's using all its techniques to do that, um, mobilising diasporic communities, uh, using aid and development and economics and so on and so forth to, yeah. to cement their place as global leaders. So for your, um, for your nationalists, um, we go back to Pauline Hansen in 1996, talking about the so-called Asian invasion and, um, you know, those Asians are coming over here and, you know, it's looking like little Shanghai or something like that, whatever she said at the time. Um, you know, she did uh, put her finger on something that a number of people become more and more concerned about, which is ownership of um, Australian land in particular, but also of businesses. Yeah. So um, a lot of people point to the fact that some powers like, um, you know, some countries like America um, uh, companies there own more stuff in Australia than Chinese do. There's a lot of problems getting the data, actually. Mm, mm, um, mm. And so if a company's registered in Hong Kong or if a company's registered in Melbourne, then it doesn't count as Chinese ownership, right, because it's not directly tracked to China. Mm. So I'm not convinced in the data that comes out around that. But having said that, the reason why something like Chinese ownership would be different than, say, an American company ownership is because of that connection between companies and the state in China, yeah. where economics is part of a state strategy, a, a deliberate state strategy. Um, so um, how to talk about it, how to think about it, um, I think, yeah, just being aware that not everyone who looks Asian is um, born in Asia and born in China. That's number one. Gee, guess what, people? You know, Asian-looking people come from everywhere and uh, that's kind of number one, I would say. Um, and I think that the reason why it's come up so much in the corona times is because people are scared of some invisible invader. Yeah. There's an invisible germ out there It's going to get me and who's the source of this germ? Where's the source of this germ? And so they go for what physically physically looks visibly different yeah, and that's I yeah. think you know why they're going for Asian people and because they feel you know some kind of social civility is broken down they feel it's perfectly acceptable to start coughing spitting and bashing um, Asian people which is just appalling and disgusting mm. um, so I'd hate to you know make it sound like Australia was all kumbaya before the virus um, because yeah, obviously, <laughs> it's, just know, it's, been, it's just that it seems that 
Chinese people or Asian Australians are once again the, the, the target. And later on, it will be someone else. And later on, it might then go back to being Asian Australians. But for now, they are the preferred target of the, the, the manic well, eye few, of white supremacy. <laughs> yeah, look, we've had a few years of Muslims, right? So yeah. I guess they're changing it up, going back to an old... Uh, target. And that's certainly something that I would think in the Australian uh, far right or nationalist scene that they've been pretty focused on China for a long time, actually. Mm. Um, And although underneath it all, they still have this belief in the Jewish question and that it's all about the Jews, but actually their um, target that they tend to go for and they get most purchase on is Chinese, Chinese influence, Chinese immigration and Chinese ownership. Yeah. And that's the kind of the pool that they've been paddling in for quite quite a few years. And actually, yeah, I mean, it's knowing that that makes it so much more important to get our messaging right if we consider ourselves left-minded or what have you, that, that we not, you know, that we, because if we do have legitimate criticisms or we want to be able to have open conversations about China and, uh, you know, Chinese economic influence here and what have you, uh, we, we, we want to be able to do that. We certainly don't want to be, you know, uh, uh, stunned into silence simply because there's a bunch of nationalist dead shits who are organising on, on the same matter, we recognise them as fundamentally disingenuous. It's simply white supremacy at, at work on Chinese people. The Belt and Road Initiative, what are your thoughts on that? Right. Well, it's kind of, um, it's a collection of uh, strategies and projects and proposed projects and failed projects that's yeah. been glued together as if it's a coherent rolled out strategy. Yeah. So, in that way, it's not like there's a big map in Xi Jinping's office and he's gone, right, okay, now we're going to do something in Werribee because I need <laughs> to put a red flag on my map. Um, you know, it's it doesn't work like that. So it's just been a matter of taking all these initiatives that have been oh. going on and putting them under a, um, a project. And people are going, well, what actually is it? Are we in it? Uh, have we joined onto it? What does it mean to join onto it? It's a bit vague, but it's basically, um, you know, this strategy of China going out from China, showing your power levels um, and getting influence all over the world and then gluing it under, you know, gluing that all together under this Belt and Road Initiative. Um, But uh, there are certain strategic targets, of course, you know, access to ports, access to resources, access to food production. Um, You know, of course, there are strategic targets. Yeah. Um, and mobilising diasporic communities so that diasporic communities feel that they are um, ba- bound, you know, by the heart yeah. to China. Yeah. And you yeah. can see that through the pandemic, right, which is when it first kicked off is uh, diasporic communities around the world, Chinese communities around the world responding by, you know, collecting supplies and sending them back to China and, yeah, okay. you know, yeah. We'll do our best for you. And that's part of that mobilising of sentiment. You know, you're part of our community and you will be with us. Um, And, of course, the way that that's perceived here is very suspiciously. You know, those evil evil Chinese fancy them buying our stuff that's freely available for sale and then sending it overseas. Hmm. Um, How dare they engage in capitalism? Um, You know, there's there's a kind of a suspicion, right? Um, about that, that it's some, you know, they're all just puppets manipulated 
by um, Beijing. But it is true. I mean, in those early days in January, um, in the pandemic, or sort of mid-January and February in the pandemic, you know, Chinese communities around the world were terribly worried about what was happening and, you know, just sending support in the yeah. best way that they could. Yeah, yeah. Kenza, I, I neglected to ask you earlier, can you tell me what the uh, human flash search engine is? Right, okay. Um, so in a way, we could see, we could say that China um, pioneered the art of doxing. And China has been well ahead, well ahead on the doxing front for a long time. Yeah. So um, they've had a culture of doxing on the internet. Netizens are big on doxing. They're keen on doxing. They like doxing and they are good at doxing. And so um, the human flesh search engine is basically just a sort of an English clumsy um, rendering of sort of a doxing mechanism by which people search for human flesh and uh, expose it online. Um, And uh, it really, really kicked off um, in the late 90s and the 2000s. Mm. Um, And so people have become kind of online vigilantes. So there would be a video of a famous case, a sports coach who had some young children in his care on some sports meet on a, in a city and yeah. he was sexually abusing them in a hotel and um, the video was shared online and then people use what we would say now is sort of open source, um, open sources to track down, here's a photo, there's the building, which city is this in, which hotel is it in, which floor is it in, who is this guy and outing the guy. Um, some kids film themselves torturing their um they're not literally, but sort of psychologically torturing their aged school teacher who was mumbling away, drawing on the blackboard, and they were just running riot um, in the classroom. And they posted it online. And by the end of the day, a whole lot of people had turned up to the school to complain about them. Um, and so this notion of citizens policing citizens, yeah, um, and particularly where the police just aren't up to the job, Um, So some of the earlier ones were, um, you know, a woman who paid a photographer to film her crushing small animals while wearing high heel shoes. Um, And, uh, you know, animal cruelty does not go down well um, with Chinese netizens. And so she was revealed, the photographers revealed that they lost their jobs, they were run out of town, you know, that kind of thing. and so that whole idea of uh, doxing and revealing um, is is really huge. And, of course, the information you can get, you get people's ID numbers, their blood type, their phone numbers, um, and it's been used to uh, bully people who have spoken out against the government. So, for example, um, overseas students, so Chinese students that have been in America or Australia, they might have organised a protest or they might have even said something, not even at a protest, and suddenly there's a pile on and everybody's piled onto them. Um, They've doxxed them. They've doxxed their family in China. They've harassed their family. They've done the equivalent of swatting them, um, you know, used every kind of online uh, mechanism to control them and uh, bully them. Mm-hmm. And so there's a um, 
a nasty edge to it, a very nasty edge to it. And it ties into this idea they're called the um, the 50-cent party or the Wumao, which are people that are paid to put pro-Chinese comments out there on the internet. Right, okay. And so there's a kind of a, a patriotic, there's a, you know, that paid component, but there's a patriotic unpaid component of people who feel that if China is insulted anywhere on the internet, it's their job to wipe it out and to okay. smash it and to control anything that's anti-China. So uh, some years ago, um, the Melbourne Film Festival was going to show some films about the Uyghurs in uh, Xinjiang province, Um, and they had a speaker coming, a a famous person coming to speak. And so the Chinese netizens piled on and they put every single uh, ticket into... um, uh, shopping carts, you know, so they effectively booked every single ticket at the Melbourne International Film Festival but never paid for anything. Wow. And the whole thing hit because nobody could buy a ticket. You didn't know if the, the thing was sold out or not sold out or should you queue up or, you know, the whole thing was really crazy and it was That's because they were trying to well-coordinated. Wow. Yeah. And so they've got these sort of armies of hackers that get on the internet and they hack into things. Uh, anything that they think is treasonous to China or against China, they've hacked into like South Korean boy bands because um, too many Chinese middle-aged women like them, oh. and uh, so it's not it's not patriotic enough. So we're going to hack into them, Super Junior. You're going down. Um, so you know they're they're, they're really quite a force. And uh, if you spend any time in the comment section of a, an American newspaper online or even on Twitter, you'll you'll encounter them. But they they really are quite sophisticated with uh, the doxing and the takedown. And it's under this you know this heading of the human flesh search engine. Mm-hmm. So we could probably learn a lot about doxing and how to use sources from them they should be really probably running training sessions and um and uh helping us uh, weed out a few of our own undesirables <laughs> that's really interesting now it's interesting to hear how these things work in that sense i mean when i when i asked you about the term i wasn't sure if it was something more unique to them or or like a you know uh, basically a a more amplified and well-coordinated version of our, you know, like the, what was discussed in the Netflix documentary, Don't Fuck With Cats. You know, people are getting together on Reddit and the like to to, to locate something and track it down. But but I guess what it is is just people in China have learnt for, over a longer period of time to become more savvy at using open source tools to hunt down people. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is that there's a lot of um, uh, leaking of stuff and leaking of data. So that's one thing that's happened in the pandemic in China as well, is that um, various lists of people who are from Wuhan, who have been to Wuhan or went to a certain hospital, um, those lists have been leaked with people's names, addresses, ID numbers, um, a lot of uh, identifying information, and then they've been ganged up upon. You know, they've they've had people ganging up on them and picking on them. So it's not like the Chinese people are all speaking as one on these issues. No, you know, yeah, within okay. China, people are saying, no, you Wuhan people, get back. We don't want you. Get out of here. We don't trust you. You're germing on us. Um, get out. So mm. they're not just um, turning against, well, now in the second wave, it's um, foreigners coming into China or people coming in from overseas into China supposedly yeah. infecting 
China, they're turning against people from Wuhan or people that were associated with a cluster in one area or people that were at a certain hospital. That sort of data is flying around as well, right. um, which is a great cause of concern to those people. And, and just out of interest, one last question. Do they have an, uh, uh, a coronavirus hoax or conspiracy lot, as far as you know? Does that exist in China? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. Um, I imagine any hint of that rumour, even the spreading, even the thought of that rumour would yeah. probably alert uh, a lot of um, uh, surveillance networks. Yeah. Um, rumours do spread around a lot, so I'm yeah. not aware of any specific coronavirus ones. Um, certainly, just on the issue of the Wuhan um, Institute, you know, that works on bat viruses, um, you'll probably know that Trump cut off funding for them. He said he cut off these millions of dollars of funding for them. In fact, that was for an NGO, an American-based NGO, that um, work with them on bat viruses. So it was actually no direct funding to them at all. It was funding to this other organisation, which is crucial to the world understanding bat viruses. Yeah. Um, so it was like a real misunderstanding. Um, and just if we had more funding for NGOs like that consistently over time, we might be in a little bit better standing uh, right now. Uh, yeah, look, just the on, coronavirus. yeah, definitely. Look, just on the bat front, um, yeah. it's probably worth, you know, having a bit of a bat chat. Um, <laughs> first of all, people do not eat bats. Bats are not a thing that you eat okay. in China. So I've all heard, those videos I, of bat eating. No, 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 no. I've heard some people, well-intentioned, I might have even repeated it myself, saying that that it might be just the rich or the elites that do. He's saying no one. It's it's hang on. It's a traditional Chinese medicine, isn't it? Yes. So grounding so, up bat powder, if you will, or what have you. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. Like, it's not yeah. as delicacy. You don't eat it. No. So that's why there are videos of Chinese people in places like Palau in Indonesia eating bats because it's so exotic. Okay, yeah. <laughs> like if, you just, if you were just eating it at home, you wouldn't be filming yourself eating it somewhere else, would you? No, yeah, yeah. So that's the first thing. Now, I can't say hand on heart that no Chinese person ever in the 5,000-year-old history of China has not eaten a bat. Um, you know, I'm sure maybe some people eat bats. I've never seen them for sale. Most people I know think it's disgusting. And, in fact, bats, are, because of the word for bat, it's a homonym for prosperity. So bats are a good luck animal. Okay. And so you see bats on uh, wedding gowns, embroidered on wedding gowns, and in uh, gifts that you give people, there are pictures of bats on them. They're seen as a good, a good thing. So bad eating, no, it ain't bad eating. Uh, in terms of wet markets, that's another whole area, right? So yeah. most wet markets, they've got, you know, live fish, slabs of meat. They might have chickens, although there's been a big crackdown on live chickens in markets. Um, and that's a standard wet market. Yeah. Um, eels, crabs, uh, some of the exotic markets you'll see, you know, your spiders and scorpions, but that's kind of a bit more touristy. Um, so you went markets. Look, as a vegetarian person, I don't find them very appealing myself. Um, but you know, it's not that out there. 
Okay, in the provinces, you'll see, you might see rats for sale, uh, dogs, that kind of thing, and a few weird yeah. animals, uh, bamboo rats, pretty weird-looking rats, and a few yeah. different things here and there, right? The majority of them don't have that kind of stuff. It's just like Vic Market with a few live things swimming around. Yeah, um, so depending on which market it is. It's dip- the, 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 the exotic animals and what have you don't define the wet market. Wet market's almost like a fresh food market, as I understand. Is that more like yeah, it? Yeah. Yep, yep. It's just like your kind of Vic Market or Preston Market or something like that in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, so my thinking is that this will probably be a bat virus that's morphed into a deadly virus for humans via the farming of exotic animals. So exotic animals are farmed and they're farmed for uh, some of them because they're eaten, some of them for their fur um, and also um, Chinese medicine. And that certainly be a way that in poor regions of China, the local officials have managed to get the economic production up, right, by farming these exotic animals. And so it's more likely that it's in a farming setting where there's uh, sustained contact between different species. Yeah. I think that this virus will have jumped, you know, from one species to another and then into into humans. And certainly, you know, some of the farming practices where you have bulk numbers of birds farmed with bulk numbers of pigs is, you know, a really clear way of getting avian um, infections into pigs, which then go easily into humans. I mean, we have a bat virus in Australia, right? Hendra virus, which goes from bats into horses and is very deadly for humans. Mm. And the horses get it from grazing where the bats have, you know, the flying okay. foxes have have been roosting and the poo yeah. on the ground. Yeah. So, um, so I think it's probably going to be from that kind of farming sector. Um, and who knows? Maybe this virus has been going around for decades, actually. Yeah, it's, it's and it, yeah, yeah. It's I only just something jumped. I did read something recently saying suggesting that there's a there is at least some theory from some scientists that there, there's, there might be evidence of it being having been in France uh, late last year or mid to late last year. But but who knows? You know, I mean, it's 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 a bit of a moot point now that the main thing is about containment. Wondering about where we on which natural source it came from, hey. Yeah, that's right. Well, the thing is that the bats, uh, particularly in southwest China, have been well studied. Um, where um, these caves, where these particularly these horseshoe bats hang out, mm. um, are just uh, teeming with all sorts of uh, stuff, you know, mm. undiscovered, undocumented fungi and moulds, as well as the kind of diseases that the bats themselves have. And of course, the issue is that with um, uh, urbanisation, with people you know, moving into environments that they normally wouldn't be in, that chance for bat-human interaction kind of increases. So that's one of the arguments about habitat and uh, control. And some of those caves with horseshoe bats have become tourist destinations. Right. So you've got people going there to picnic amongst (laughs) the uh, infected rabid bat population, which seems a bit crazy to me. So so it's worth noting also that uh, there's a big... um, attempt in the Chinese media to go back through media reports from the last flu season in America and find 
anomalous reports, so reports of anomalous cases where, oh, look, we had this weird cluster of pneumonia and it was really deadly and strange. Oh, look, it was in November in America. Um, so kind of to try to push it back onto this was a virus that was imported into China from somewhere else. You, um, you hope that one day we might reach a point at which we all states Global powers all stop wasting their time trying to blame each other for shit, but you know, but 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 it's a complete moot point anyway. Just to try and sway voter consensus in their favour, hey? Well, exactly. And in the case of Trump, um, you know, eighty thousand plus deaths uh, had a long time to prepare for it, stuffed it up. Uh, so who's got the blood on their hands? Oh, he'll always find someone to blame, but there's not really anyone to blame ultimately, is there? Not not, not by the time you've reached 80,000 uh, deaths, many of which were preventable pain. Yeah, absolutely. Dr Kaz, um, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure and I've learned a lot. Thank you. You're very welcome, Tom. That's all from me. I am Thomas Q. Tanneke. You have been listening to War Room pandemic. See you next fortnight.